Did I speak too soon? There may be some drama after all in September as some division races have gotten interesting that include both the Mets and Yankees. Serena battled but ended losing a three-hour slugfest. But did she leave the door open on a return to tennis? The opening weekend of college football had some crazy moments, especially last night's game between Florida State and LSU. And playoff expansion in the sport is in the works. I'll have some fun with NFL over-under numbers as the season is just three days away. Donovan Mitchell has a new address. And no, it's not New York as the Knicks blow another opportunity to get a star player. Fasten your seatbelts as we prepare for a wild ride throughout the sports landscape. It's all coming up. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, directed, in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits on this Labor Day Monday as most of us are kicking back and enjoying these final few days of summer, taking it easy on this holiday. Let's not forget that the season isn't over, people. There are still some warm days ahead of us. Take advantage as much as possible to bask in the sun and cherish these times before we get to cooler temps and shorter days. I can't stress this enough that it's all about the moment, being and staying present. I will always attempt to throw a few kernels out there of positivity and perspective just for those who are thinking either too far ahead or feeling as if there's finality to something that isn't. So with that said, there's no finality here as I'm just getting started. There's lots to canvas here over the next hour as the sports scene is on and popping. So thanks for stopping by to digest it all as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And on this September 5th, for the 45th trip around the sun, I have to big up my brother Justin, who's in South Florida, who has a birthday today, and I'd be remiss to not send him well wishes, a very happy birthday, Cecil Fielder, Garrett Cole, if you want to throw him out there, a bunch of other 45s that off the top of my head I can't 
think of at the moment, but happy 45th to you, bro. Much love. Wishing you the best and many more to come. And as we get into sports, yes, there's quite a bit to juggle here, and I'm loving it because as you've listened throughout the past month and change, even if you're new here, August was a slog. Thankfully, it's been over. We can now focus our attention to a lot of sports. It was just baseball for quite some time. Yes, yeah, some golf, and we had the tennis to bandy about back and forth, especially now with the U.S. Open, and I'll get to that later on with Serena and her losing there on Friday night, which I did get to watch. And is she done with tennis? She pretty much left it open for her to return, so you'll get my two cents on that. All of the college football that took place over the weekend, including that wild game last night between Florida State and LSU, And now, it's official, the college football playoff will expand, maybe as early as 2024, but in preparation for possibly a 2026 launch. So we still have some time, but I know that the college football committee, they're looking to do their best that in the next two years to have this expansion take place, and this is long overdue and long awaited, but there may be a caveat, which I will discuss later on when we talk about college football And to stick with the gridiron, NFL just three days away where Buffalo goes to Los Angeles to play the Rams. So I'll go through the over-under numbers as we get set for an NFL preview this coming Thursday. And it's a big week here on the podcast, as I'll explain later on. Not only will I have my Thursday podcast, but I'll also have another podcast, which I'm going to release Late Wednesday night into Thursday morning, I'll talk about that later on, and it involves a former NFL player, which I've talked about in the past, so I'll bring it up. Chris Dishman, former All-Pro corner of the Houston Oilers, also played in Washington with the then Redskins, as well as Kansas City and Minnesota. He spent some time with me a couple weeks back, and I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you later on this week. So a big week here with the pod. Also, I'll get into the NBA. Donovan Mitchell gets traded. No, not to the Knicks, but to the Cavaliers. What does that mean for the Cavs? As they have a nice young nucleus. And could they make some hay in the Eastern Conference next year? I'll talk about that. Obviously, all the tennis with the U.S. Open, as I mentioned. But with the turn of events that has taken place over the last 48 hours in the sport of baseball, as this date, a month from now, the season will conclude. The season will end on a Wednesday, October the 5th, which will be four weeks from this coming Wednesday. But as we look at the calendar as it is, one month from today, we will have games 162 completed. And then we can look forward to a Hunt for Red October, which now brings some drama. Because as I said last week, it looked like it was going to be a September to forget. Yes, you had some wild card races to discuss. Yes, you had the AL Central with the Guardians, Twins, and White Sox, which I understand is not going to tickle the baseball fans' fancy, but at least it was a division race where you had a couple of teams that were going to battle it out, even one for a wild card if you're the Twins. I know the White Sox are pretty much deep in the wild card race to where they probably can't reach that final wild card spot in the American League, but... Just a few days ago, with that division being the only race that was in the baseball stratosphere, now that has changed. Because what we've seen here over the weekend. And I'm going to start off with the AL Central. I'll go there because I understand I could talk Mets, Yankees, 
for those out there who are listening will probably think, oh, good. Spare us the Mets and Yankees for now because it seems as if that's the angle that I always go at. And we understand New York is a big market, two big market teams, wild expectations, especially with the Yankees and what they did in the first part of the year. But I'll start with the AL Central only because you have two teams that are tied at the top of the division where it's the Guardians who have lost now five in a row after getting swept by the Mariners at home and then they lost to the Orioles those two games in the middle of the week to now they are limping here down the stretch and the Twins who did not play well in Chicago against the White Sox over the weekend and I'm sure you saw the video to where Gary Sanchez almost got decapitated in the on-deck circle but now they make their way east to the Bronx to play four games to go against his former team Sanchez that is and the Twins who always Go back in the history books, especially over the last 20 years, fold like a cheap suit against the Yankees, whether it's postseason, regular season, it doesn't matter. And now they have four ginormous games for them to see if they could get themselves back to first place. And this is a team that was in first place pretty much the whole year up until about a month ago. The Guardians, who had not played well, and we know that they're a team, other than Jose Ramirez, you probably can't name out of a lineup. Their pitching, which has pretty much been very good and very solid, but Shane Bieber hasn't had the Cy Young-type year that he had a couple years ago. Zach Plesak is on the IL. You've had overachievement galore with the Guardians here over the last month, but now it seems like their warts, and even with the injuries, are starting to crop up to the point to where they may actually lose a division lead as early as today. Now, the Guardians do go to Kansas City over the next few days, so you would think that maybe they could snap this losing streak, get back to winning ways, stay in first place, even if they're tied with the Twins. But again, with the Twins having to play in the Bronx over the next four days, you would think that that would bode well for the Guardians to at least maybe get a game or two back in the standings. If the Twins split this series against the Yankees, and we know the Yankees have been awful here over the last, really, six to seven weeks, But considering that the Yankees won yesterday, maybe, just maybe, that'll be enough fuel in the tank for them to know that the Twins are in their building and they've done well historically against them, that they could reel off two, three, maybe even win a series that they haven't done so and it seems forever. So with the Twins looking forward to maybe reclaiming their spot at the top of the division and the Guardians slipping a little bit, and even with the White Sox winning two out of three against the Twins over the weekend... They are just two back in the division, three in the loss of both the Twins and Guardians. And the White Sox, over the course of the next few days, will be in Seattle. So funny enough how the Guardians had left Seattle getting swept. In come the White Sox to see what they could do against the Mariner team that is probably, as we speak, the hottest team in baseball. Not only have they won seven in a row, but they've been just hot as a pistol I get you could look at maybe even the Braves as being the team that's probably the hottest in the sport. But the Mariners, they've been firing on all cylinders and they're looking to get themselves locked into a postseason to where we talked about this weeks ago. I feel that by default, they'll make it to the postseason because they have the Rays, the Blue Jays, and even the Orioles two and a half games back in the wild card that are going to battle it out here over the course of the next month to where you think they will probably cannibalize one another considering they all play in the same division where if Seattle just goes about their business 
and continues to win series, they're going to be probably either a four seed or at worst a five seed in the American League. And then they'll take their chances with Luis Castillo, Logan Gilbert, Robbie Ray, etc. into October to see if they could not only make it to the postseason for the first time since 2001, which is the longest drought, I believe, in all of sports, not just baseball, in all the four major sports. But who knows, with that type of pitching, maybe they could go on a run to where they could win a wild card and then into a division series. But getting well too far ahead of that at the moment. But the AL Central looks like it's going to be a fight to the very finish. You have the Twins and White Sox playing a bunch of games here down the stretch. In fact, they still have six games and two series between those two teams as we get into this final month of the season. And as it stands right now, the Guardians still have eight more games against the Twins, including a five-game series that starts September 16th, which is a week from this coming Friday. They'll have a doubleheader, and these games will actually be in Cleveland. So before that, they actually have a weekend series at Minnesota this coming weekend, and then the five-gamer the following, which is a wraparound series Friday to Monday, and Sandwiched in between will be a doubleheader. So this division is going to come down really to its final few games. Now they do not play each other after that. And the Guardians do have the White Sox on the schedule one last time where they have to go to Chicago. In fact, after the five-game series against the Twins. So that's going to be an interesting stretch. And even before that, they have a makeup game I see here September 15th at home. So the Guardians, think about this. They have Kansas City, these three games upcoming. A day off on Thursday at Minnesota, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They do host the Angels for three games. In between that, they have the White Sox, then the Twins, and then the White Sox for three games. And they're scheduled the rest of the way. They have their final six games are actually against Kansas City. So it's tailor-made for them to at least win a division, depending on where they're at at that time. But the only reason why I bring this up is because I could talk Mets and Yankees all we want, and yes, it's a little bit of a twist to start off the podcast to talk AL Central because you would think at the end of the day, whomever comes out of this division, they are not going to go far in the postseason. Now, they'll host a wild card round, which may be unfair to the team that they're going to play against, the sixth seed, whomever that may be, whether it is Tampa, Baltimore, Toronto, maybe even Seattle for that matter. But we would think that whomever comes out of the AL Central may not be long for October because of how they performed this year, underachieving. Yes, at times they've been overachieving if you're the Guardians, but again, a little bit of a different twist to start to highlight the AL Central a little bit because that's a division where you have three teams that are going to battle it out for the one spot because chances are in the wild card, they are not going to be there. And I'll take a just quick look there before I go to the Mets and Yankees. The wildcard standings in the AL at the current moment, you have the Tampa Bay Rays trailing Seattle by a game. Mind you, that the Rays have two games in hand because they're tied in the loss at 58. So with the Jays just a game behind the Rays, 73-59, and 59, Tampa Bay Rays 74-58, and 58, Seattle 76 and 58. And even with the Guardians, Twins, and White Sox, they all lumped them together because they're tied. Five in the wild card and the White Sox seven back, you can forget about it. 
So those three teams are going to play for the one spot and that's why I started off with the AL Central and what they're going to have to do to win a division and make it to the postseason. Now let's talk about the Mets and Yankees and I'll start with the Mets. Very disappointing weekend on all fronts. Not only Max Scherzer had to pull himself from the game there on Saturday night as he left after five innings and 62 pitches with the game tied at one. All right, the Mets maybe at that point let their guard down a little bit knowing that Scherzer wasn't going to go deep in the game and their bullpen, which I got to tell you, it is a, not going to say a nightmare, but it is going to keep us Met fans up at night knowing that for whatever the reason between the 6th and 8th innings, it's going to be hold your breath, cross your fingers, and bite your nails all at the same time because the Joely Rodriguez's of the world the Trevor Williamses of the world, even the Michael Givens, who has pitched a little bit better recently, but he scares me in a big spot. Those guys are not the bridge to Adovino and Diaz, to say the least. And in a perfect world, of course, we would like to have our pitchers go maybe six and two-thirds, seven, and then hand the ball off to Adovino and Diaz. And even better would be to go eight innings if you're Scherzer and DeGrom and then just hand it off to Diaz to, God willing, close it out. But the Met bullpen and even their offense here over the last couple of days against the Nationals of all teams has to make you wonder whether or not they're squeezing a bat a little bit too tight. They know the Braves are now a game back after sweeping the Marlins and they came into the weekend three ahead and now they're just one behind. The Braves go to Oakland so the Mets cannot lose first place even as early as today because the Mets are in Pittsburgh where the Braves are off until tomorrow night. Two game series in Oakland, followed by a day off, and then three in Seattle over the weekend. So that's good news for the Mets. But watch the Mariners all of a sudden get cold, and then the Braves continue their torrid streak. But if you're a Mets fan right now, you have to be very concerned. Because we've been in first place since day one, and here we are day what? 135, or really game 135, because the Mets are 85 and 50. This is not the time to squander first place, and I get it. That even if they do so, they're still going to make the playoffs. They will be a wild card. But you didn't get this far to not only give up a division lead, but then to end up as a wild card team to where you're going to have to start Scherzer and DeGrom games one and two of the wild card round and then go into the division series, probably starting Chris Bassett, then Taiwan Walker, and then have to restart your rotation by putting in Scherzer and DeGrom after that. You don't want to do that knowing that Scherzer has this injury. Well, he pulled himself out of the game. He said that he probably could have continued if it was the playoffs or he could have gone out there in the sixth inning. But he said that he couldn't look his teammates in the face if he did come up lame and had to be on the shelf for a considerable amount of time. So he took the easy way out. I'll say it in that regard. I know that may be a little bit too loose for me to say, But it was more of a precaution than anything. And you know what? He knows his body and he knows what's at stake. He was brought there to win games in October, not in August and September. So that I have to give Scherzer credit for. And it was against the Nationals. If that was against the Dodgers, maybe it was the Braves, who knows? He probably would have pushed the envelope to go an extra inning and then tell Showalter, the manager, that I don't want to spend any more. I want to save my bullets for the playoffs. 
But this Met team, even though they're playing Pittsburgh these next three days, and then they go to Miami over the weekend. And Miami, they could give the Mets fits here. I understand they've been awful. They've lost nine of the last ten games. They just got swept by the Braves, as I mentioned. But you just never know. And they cannot lose this division lead by any stretch. Yes, can they lose it between now and let's say the end of the season, provided that (laughs) if I had a crystal ball and they were able to win the division even by the slimmest of margins, fine, I'll take it. But they cannot go into the wildcard round knowing that they have to play that series as opposed to putting their feet up and preparing for divisional series. I think that would, for the psyche of this team, not bode well. Even with Buck Showalter, the calming influence in the locker room, the guy that we desperately needed for God knows how long. But even then, I'm sure the players, they'll be ready to go, they'll be amped up, etc. But I think it would be a detriment knowing that this team has been in first place all year. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but by any means, if the Braves do overtake the division and win this thing, who knows what that's going to mean for this team psyche when we get to the postseason. And then we have the Yankees. And I'm going to say this, and I've said this time after time, they are not going to lose this division. And they had the biggest win of their season yesterday. And mind you, they won it by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin as they had a 2-0 lead in the ninth inning and the Rays were able to score a run, but they weren't able to get the equalizer. And this is with Aaron Judge leading off and hitting a home run his 53rd of the year. And them having to fight tooth and nail just to win a game let alone get a hit. And this was a road trip that they couldn't hit out of a wet paper bag, as I mentioned the other day, as I'm sounding like a broken record. But this Yankee team, once again, they're not going to lose this division. It would have been interesting if the Rays won yesterday because there would have been two in the loss and three back with a series upcoming at Yankee Stadium this coming weekend. As it is right this moment, four in the loss, five back, the Twins coming in, as I mentioned, You would think that that would be a cure-all based on what they've done against the Twins over the last two decades. But if the Yankees aren't going to hit, who knows? Maybe the Twins could steal a game or two in the Bronx, which they haven't done, and let alone, dare I even say them, win a series? Because I can't even remember the last time the Twins won a series at Yankee Stadium. That's how bad they've been against the Yankees over the said two decades just a minute ago. But now you have a scenario where the Yankees are literally holding on for their dear lives. And I even thought of a scenario over the weekend that if the Yankees did happen to lose this division and had to play in a wild card, similar to the Mets in that regard, but I would think it would be worse for the Yankees if they did that. And again, I don't think that's going to be the case. But could you imagine the Yankees having a 15 and a half game lead as early as the middle of July or around the All-Star break? And then for them to spit it up to have to play a wild card round as a four seed, mind you, because you have to give it to the division winners first. And the likelihood of them playing maybe even the Seattle Mariners in the first round to where they would have to face Luis Castillo potentially twice. And we know how Castillo had fared against the Yankees this year in three starts over five weeks. So that is the last thing that the Bombers want to do. But let's just paint that scenario for one second. If the Yankees didn't win a division and had to play in a wildcard round, and let's just say lost in the wildcard round, which who knows what that would look like on 161st and River Avenue, not only just with the organization, but the fan base, etc. You would have to fire Aaron Boone. But wait a second. 
the Yankees, for whatever the reason, decided to give Aaron Boone an extension before last year, four years. Check the receipts. I said the most you could give this guy is two years and a team option after that. And that was even pushing it. If I was a GM, I'd say, all right, you're coming back for one year and an option. Because they have not made it to the World Series. They have flamed out in a lot of these postseason series. The last one, including the wild card with Garrett Cole just imploding on the mound. And I'm going to give this guy a four-year deal. We understand the logistics of baseball in 2022. With analytics and Brian Cashman, who, by the way, is in the last year of his deal. Holding the puppet strings for one Aaron Boone. And I said this on my TikTok feed the other day. Boone is not the guy for this job. He just isn't. And people could argue with me to say, as great as Boone was in the first half of the year to where they were 52 and 18, and I believe, what, 63 and 21, or 61 and 23, and now all of a sudden, he's an awful manager? It has nothing to do with his managing, although that could be questioned. But what it has to do is with the relationship that he has with the players, where, to me, it's too much more of a coddling nurturing caregiver as one that would manage the team as forcefully with integrity dignity etc and I understand I'm not in the locker room so who knows if Aaron Boone is flipping tables or if he is getting into the face of certain players or whatever it may be that a manager would do to kind of not only keep everybody cool but at the same time keep everybody accountable And that's the one thing that Aaron Boone does not do. He does not put the pressure on his players. He does not look into the face of his guys to say, hey, you need to show up or you need to deliver here. This is why you're getting paid $30 million a year or whatever it is. But of course, in this day and age, you can't do that to the player because right away the player will turn on the manager. And of course, the player's not going to get shipped out of town. It's the manager that's going to take the ax. And I tell you this, If that scenario that I just painted actually goes through, the Yankees have to get rid of him. I'm getting well ahead of myself. I know that's not going to be the case. But let's just say for argument's sake, he loses in the division series in the first round. What's going to happen then? The fans are going to want his head. The fan is already sick of Aaron Boone, as you saw a couple of weeks ago, more so toward the management with Old Timers Day, how they booed Brian Cashman, in fact, it wasn't Old Timers Day. It was Paul O'Neill Retirement Day, whatever it was, where they booed Hal Steinbrenner and Brian Cashman. The fan base is fed up. And if the Yankees do not get out of a division series this year, they're going to want heads to roll. So if that means Brian Cashman not re-signing him going into next year, or Aaron Boone, sorry, we'll pay you off those final three years, but we have to go in a different direction, the Yankees can afford it. They're not the Arizona Diamondbacks. They're not the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're the Yankees. So if the Yankees do not make it to, and this is sad to even say it this way, if they don't make it to a championship series in the American League, where we all know the standard is World Series victory or bust, but considering the way they've just tripped, fallen, stumbled, bumbled, rumbled, throughout the last six weeks of this season, you would almost take them making it to an ALCS at this point. 
Because who knows if they're even going to get out of the division series, let alone a wild card, if they happen to fall and plummet to a wild card spot. Crazy times here in New York where all of a sudden, just on a dime, a three-game lead in the NL East shriveled to one, and the AL East got down to as many as four. But now it's four in the loss, five, and let's see if the Yankees can turn their fortunes here at home against the Twins and then the Mets going to Pittsburgh to play the Pirates. So, some drama after all, considering that last week at this time, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a slumber of a September, but who knows? Maybe it'll be intriguing after all. Quickly with the NL wildcard, the Phillies got swept by the Giants over the weekend, and that's embarrassing because a Philly team that had played well, they did hit a little bit of a speed bump a couple weeks ago, but now they had gotten their sea legs to the point where they put themselves in good position. And chances are they're going to win a wild card spot anyway because all you have there is the Brewers that could speak of. And the Brewers have not played well here. You can forget about the division as the Cardinals have an eight-game lead on the Milwaukee Brewers as of today. So that's a formality. But when it comes to the wild card, you have the Braves currently 10 and a half games over the Third place spot in the wild card, which currently is occupied by the Phillies. They're a half game tied in the loss with the Padres, and they lost the back two to LA over the weekend. No surprise there. But the Brewers, like I mentioned, two and a half games back of the Phillies for the last wild card spot. And let's see what the Phillies do this week. I'll take a look at their schedule. They will host the Marlins, and the Marlins, again, they have been floundering here. No pun intended. So you would think that the Phillies will make up some ground here. And when we look at the Padres, they will host the Diamondbacks, who did not play well over the weekend. In fact, the Diamondbacks, what they did over the last few games, not only did they beat the Phillies two out of three, but they also beat the Brewers three out of four. So they're playing spoiler here. There's no guarantee that the Diamondbacks are just going to roll over and just give these games away, especially to the Padres. So let's see what the Diamondbacks could do if they could upset the apple cart and throw a little wrinkle into the NL wildcard mix. But besides that, that's what you have. We'll certainly continue to keep an eye and fingers on the pulses with everything that I discussed here. And let's take a quick look at the over-under numbers as we're here at Labor Day. And when we look at that, first things first, I have three victories that I've already put in my pocket. Now, they're not official, but with the Braves at 90.5 and and they're currently at 84, with the Cardinals at 85.5, and and I believe they're at 77. I got to double check that. They may be at 79 for all I know. But the Cardinals should be home free as far as getting the over at 85.5. And And as I look at their number, it is 79. So I should be in the clear there. And then the other victory that I have is the Oakland A's 70.5 is an under, and I believe they currently have 50 wins in the bank. Now, the one loss, and I've talked about this for weeks, the White Sox 91.5, what a major disappointment that was. And then I could either go 4-2 and two or 3-3 three and three because chances are I'm going to probably go 3-3. Three and three. But Tampa, 89.5 is their under, and they're at 74. They have 30 games left. They would literally have to go 500 in order for me to get a win there with the under because they would match 89 
And of course, at 89.5, you have to win 90. I would think they're going to play above 500 baseball throughout the rest of the schedule. So I'm going to look at that as a loss, even though that could be a minor question mark. And then the Phillies, even with them getting swept with 28 games to go and their number at 85.5 is an under, they're currently at 73. So I think that's going to be a loss. So when we look at it overall, not good. I may end up 500, quite possibly 4-2, and two, but I think that's going to be very unlikely. So 500 it is, and I guess I have to settle and deal with that for my baseball season. And then one last thing, Albert Pujols hit number 695 yesterday. He now has literally one month to get five more home runs to get to 700. He's one behind A-Rod all time. And I just hope that the press, not just the baseball press, but the sporting press looks at this achievement as a major milestone because the last person to hit 700, I get it, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, Barry Bonds, but we know Bonds and that whole narrative. But if Pujols were to get that, especially before the end of the season, I hope baseball, A, will celebrate it, and they better celebrate it. But the press and the media, hopefully they'll do the same, knowing that Albert Pujols is a locked first ballot Hall of Famer, and for him to get to 700 without the cloud of steroids hanging over him, it should be celebrated times 50. And I don't care if the NFL has the craziest week two or week three, whatever that may be, but if Pujols hits number 700 on a Sunday, I get it, it's not going to be the top storyline, but it for damn sure... Better be a top storyline because if it gets swept under the rug or it's just a sidebar, then shame on the networks, the other radio shows, podcasts, other platforms for not cherishing this record because I understand it being tainted over the years with the steroids, but come on. 700 home runs is still 700 home runs and we're not going to see that probably ever, at least in our lifetime, because nobody. You can name Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge is already 30. Forget about Pete Alonso. Not even Mike Trout. Bryce Harper, Manny Machado. Uh-uh. This may be the last guy to reach this final frontier for 700 home runs. Case closed. All right, I'm going to take off my cleats and put on my tennis shoes because I want to talk U.S. Open here for a minute. Yes, I know. I'll get to the college football, the NFL over under numbers, as well as the big trade in the NBA a few days ago. But I want to talk Serena. I did watch the match the other night against, and you know me with names, people. Ila Tomjanovic, she didn't even break a sweat until the final match point to where Serena, I believe there was, what, six or seven match points that she was able to stave off before Tomjanovic was able to win in straight sets. And Serena pretty much encapsulated her career in that final set by not giving up, by showing the warrior that she is, all the fight, how much he battled, how much he gutted it out, but unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And I mentioned this a few days ago to where the Wednesday match, and mind you, I know that first set in that second round match that she had was tooth and nail, and even though the final two sets were, I believe, 6-2, 6-3, not to say that they were cakewalks, but I think that match took a lot out of her knowing that Tom Janovic, who I've never seen play before, And she looked like a robot out there. She was great. Played excellent. Again, Serena's will 
extended that match longer than it probably should have. If it was anybody else, it probably would have been over in an hour and a half. But for Serena to lay it all on the court with all the celebrities in the building, and we saw Russell Wilson with Ciara 700 times, and obviously they're going to show Venus, her sister, understandably and rightfully so, Tiger Woods, etc. But for Serena to now get to this point to where even in the post-match, she did say that, yes, it's all likely that it's going to be over, but you never know. Does it make you wonder whether or not that she's going to come through the back door, maybe after settling in for a little bit, getting some rest, not going to perform for probably another couple of months before she even ramps up any type of training and regimen to even think about playing in the Australian Open in late January? If I was her, I'd call it a career. I understand she didn't go out on top. I also understand who am I to tell her to hang up your tennis shoes and your racket. But she'll be 41 at the end of the month. She laid it all on the line as we saw there Friday night. If that was a way to go out without winning a major tournament, that was it. No more needs to be said. There's nothing else that she needs to prove. And yes, I understand that she was one shy of Margaret Court for all-time Grand Slam victories, but mother time got you, girl. I don't know what else to tell you. And it's not to say that if she went out there in January that she couldn't do it, but the movement, the training, these girls are just as spry, young, powerful, fast. And Serena, you could tell she was gassed at the start of that second set because the first set was a tiebreaker set and it took everything out of her. But again, her will led that match to instead of an hour and 45 or two hours and 15 minutes to over three hours. And Tomjanovic, give her credit because she won her fourth round match and she's moving on in the US Open. But as far as Serena goes, you had a hell of a career, a Hall of Fame career, and quite frankly, an immortal career. So hopefully this is it. After talking with her husband, family, etc., she'll be at peace to know that I gave it my all, leaving Flushing Meadow, Arthur Ashe Stadium, the way that she embodied her career with all the determination, the effort, the grit, etc. And to me, even though she lost and didn't make it into the second week, she went out like a champ. So God bless her. Hopefully this is it for her. If not, hey, I'll be there watching, waiting with open arms to see what she's going to do next. But at 41 years of age, and she's already defied mother time as it is. But as far as the women's side goes, you still have a lot of contenders there. Coco Goff won, so she's possibly on deck for maybe a semifinal or even a final appearance. We'll have to see because you still have Iga Swiatek, Petra Kvitova, also, Victoria Azarenka, Anjabur, who was a finalist at Wimbledon, the aforementioned Tom Janovic. So there's still a competitive field there left to see who's going to come out there on top of the women's. As far as the men's go, we had a big ouster there yesterday with Nick Kyrgios upsetting Daniel Medvedev in four sets. Kyrgios being the character that he was, I know the one highlight after winning a point to where he got that point taken away from him because he came to the other side of the net, albeit out of bounds, and then fired back 
toward Medvedev, which he shouldn't have done. I get he was being playful and probably playing up to the crowd, but that's Kyrgios for you in a nutshell. You know he's going to be effervescent. You know he's going to be a little bit to the left or to the right. He's not going to play it straight down the middle. But Kyrgios moves on, and he's going to be the fascinating story because based on what I said last week and him trying to get back to a final like he did a couple of months ago at Wimbledon to really make that run stick to see if he's going to be a player not only for now but in the future because you don't want this guy to be a one-hit wonder or a guy that just made it to a final and then his attitude or his demeanor just all of a sudden shrinks in the moment or doesn't live up to what he was able to do at Wimbledon as of this moment by him beating Medvedev that was a huge step let's see if he goes deep into this tournament where we still have Carlos Alcaraz we still have of course Rafael Nadal and we're going to wait and see whether or not we'll be able to have any of these aforementioned players you think Alcaraz and Nadal they're on the same side of the bracket so you may have a Kyrgios versus Nadal matchup when it's all said and done. But again, there's still plenty of tennis to be played. I'll be back on Thursday to see where we're at as far as prior to the weekend and where both the men's and women's lie. But the tournament to date, has it been thrilling? I know it's been all Serena up until Friday night. Now you kind of exhale a little bit and see where the rest of the competition field ends up as we get deeper into this tournament and crown a champion come Sunday afternoon in the men's and with the women's Saturday night. Now from the tennis shoes to the helmet and shoulder pads, college football was ushered into our consciousness over the weekend and you had this theme here where some things remain the same, Georgia as they just spanked the Ducks, no need to even get into that game. Ohio State did it more defensively than offensively as they beat Notre Dame. They pretty much held the Fighting Irish in check over the last, what, 40-some-odd minutes of the game as they couldn't get anything mustered offensively. But Ohio State, matter of fact, 21-10 game. C.J. Stroud, the quarterback, not great with the stat line. Not bad either, but certainly didn't come out like gangbusters to start off a season. But then again, you have to give Notre Dame some credit. But you figure with Notre Dame already behind the eight ball as far as the championship perspective, and it's way too soon to talk about that. But that's a team we're going to have to pay attention to as we move along, even with the one loss in their back pocket. Ohio State, you would think, is going to be there when it's all said and done. But good start for the Buckeyes over the Fighting Irish. And the Irish only have one other big game on their schedule, which is going to be Clemson, and that's going to be huge. They lose that game, you can forget it. They're not going to make it even in the discussion when it comes to the college football playoff. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But you had those two scenarios. Then Utah and Florida, I talked about this the other day, where Utah, if they were going to be that team to be, again, as I mentioned, part of that discussion for a college football playoff berth, this is a game that they had to win. Now, mind you, this isn't the 90s Steve Spurrier teams that we saw that won championships back in that decade, but to have to come from the state of Utah to the heat and humidity of not really South Florida, but Central Florida, they're in Gainesville, and Utah, they fought, they played well, but they had Anthony Richardson, the quarterback of Florida, run all over them, three touchdowns, they had the one touchdown there late with about a minute and a half to go, that took the lead 29-26, and even Utah still had a shot 
to win the game as they marched down the field. They actually got first and goal with about 30 seconds to go. And they didn't play conservatively. You figured that maybe at that point, even with first and goal, you take a couple of shots in the end zone. They did do that. And what happened? Interception by Amari Bernie to seal the game. And you had to go for it there. I mean, it's first and second down. You have to take a shot at the end zone. You don't want to run three, draw plays. I don't know what their timeout situation was off the top of my head. But you had to take a shot in the end zone. I could see if it was fourth down and it went for it as opposed to kicking a field goal. There I would have said, you know what? You have to take the points there. You have to go ahead and try to tie the game. And then hope and pray that your defense does try to stop Anthony Richardson. So you cannot fault Utah there for trying to play close to the vest, for them to try to play for a tie. They were trying to go for a win there, and why not? Your first and goal at the five, first down attempt, no good, and then on second down came the interception. Tough break by Utah. They had a shot, but they were unable to either slow or stop Anthony Richardson and obviously punch it in to get the lead there. That would have been an enormous win for the Utes. Because that would have been, not to say season-defining after one game, but like I mentioned, if they were going to be serious about putting themselves in the ranking for a college football playoff, that was a game that they had to win. And unfortunately, they didn't. And then you had the game last night between Florida State and LSU. What a wild ending that game was. Brian Kelly's first game... Former Notre Dame coach, now at LSU. They were down 24-10 in the fourth quarter. They came storming back. They cut it to one score at 24-17. And then Florida State, they had to punt to where the returner muffed the punt deep in LSU territory with about 2-10 to go. And then Florida State's knocking on the door to where they could take the lead and pretty much ice the game. They fumble the ball. LSU recovers. They march down the field with now a minute and a half to go. They punch it into the end zone to make it 24-23. Mind you, it's in the Superdome. So it's in their backyard. And then what happens? As they go for the extra point, and mind you, their special teams was awful the whole night. They had two muff punts. They had a missed field goal early in the game. And then now they line up for the extra point, and what happens? It gets blocked. And they lose 24-23. So if you're Brian Kelly, the coach of the team, you have not slept a wink. That one's going to stick in your craw to your next game. And then tonight you have Clemson. They're going to play Georgia Tech ESPN Monday night game. Who knows? It's on the road. Could Georgia Tech pull off an upset? Quite possibly. But Clemson has bigger things to look ahead to. And I'm sure they're going to be Raring to go to show and prove after last year, which was a super down year for them, how Dabble Sweeney and company are going to try to do their best to reclaim a national championship, but to get themselves back into the college football playoff mix. So we shall see how that takes into shape tonight for those who will be watching. And speaking of college football playoff, how about this? Where word came down over the weekend... That starting in 2026, they're going to expand to 12 teams and that they're actually pushing and are eager to maybe start the playoff come 2024. So here it is, the college football fan that 
we've been waiting for this forever. That once they expanded to four teams and we saw how that shaped up and then after the same four teams that seem to make it every year, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Notre Dame, throwing any of those teams, they've pretty much made it every year since the start of the college football playoff. And then after a couple of years, oh, we got to expand it to eight. We got to expand it to 12. We got to do something. It's the same teams over and over. Well, we got our wish where we may have to wait four years, but quite possibly two years, which is a good thing. But now here's the one thing that I worry about. And although it's good for the sport, and yes, this is throwing a little bit of cold water on it, because chances are they're probably going to seed five through 12, and then the top four seeds will have buys. So the Cinderella team that's going to be ranked nine through 12, will they be enough to not only upset five through eight, however those teams may fall, but will they have any shot of beating any of the top four teams? To where it's all said and done, we still may have those top four teams and those top four seeds make it to the semifinal round. And then we'll have this playoff as if nothing ever happened. So when you had a team like Cincinnati last year to make the top four, who knows if that type of team made it to the college football playoff, could they lose to X team? Probably. But when it comes to the behemoths of the sport, the Alabamas, the Georges, uh, are those teams going to lose? Even with the team playing in that first round to where they have some momentum, they already have a game under their belt, and Alabama or that type of team has been sitting for a few weeks to where they get off to a sluggish start or they come out flat, could it possibly happen for a quarter or two? Yeah, but when it's all said and done, you would think the Bamas of the world are going to just steamroll over their opponent. But the sport needs this because it's better than what we currently have now. The same four teams to where at least we have a field of 12 and quite possibly maybe one of those teams could wear the glass slipper when it's all said and done. Maybe not win a championship, but maybe get to a championship. But it's still plenty of time between now and then. I just wanted to throw that in there. Not just the playoff, excuse me, but the whole scenario regarding the 5 through 12 ranked teams. To me, it's similar to last year when we looked at how the Eagles and Steelers made it at 7 seeds and they got spanked and were out of the playoffs pretty much before they got started. So, college football may have that same issue once they get this started, but I understand, Jay Reels, relax. Can we get the playoff format up and running and have a couple of seasons under our belt before we can start judging or forecasting what this is going to look like? Before we even have a 12 seed playing a 5 seed, I get it. But this is why I do what I do. To have these debates, to have these thoughts, to have these discussions. Because we could probably have that scenario come year 1, year 2, maybe even year 5, year 10 of this college football playoff. That's why I throw it out there. And with the NFL getting ready to ramp up their season come Thursday, I'm going to throw some over-unders at you because... That's going to be a big part of the program on Thursday. You know me, I always pick three overs, three unders. I haven't switched it up to where it's four and two or all overs or all unders. I kind of like to do three and three. But quickly, two teams at the top with 11 and a half are Buffalo and Tampa. The bottom team, no, it's not the Jets, believe it or not, or even the Jacksonville Jaguars for that matter. It's the Houston Texans to no surprise. 
but they're also tied with Atlanta for the worst over-under win totals for 2022, and that's four and a half. And then all the teams in between, your Super Bowl champion, LA Rams, currently are at ten and a half. The AFC representative of the Super Bowl last year, the Bengals, nine and a half. And then you have, obviously, all the teams in between. A number that really sticks out to me at the present moment, and it's not to say that I'm going to take them either way, but it's the Browns at eight and a half. And I get it, by the time Deshaun Watson comes back, it's going to be, I believe, week 13, so it'll probably be their 12th game at that time, because I believe their bye, they already have had their bye come that time, and I believe that game is, what, December, the first Sunday in December, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe late November. But even if the Browns are roughly 500, so let's say they're 5-6, and six, and I understand you have Watson coming there for the last six games, and could they go 4-2? and two? Absolutely, to get to 9-8. and eight. But is Jacoby Brissett going to win five games? I understand that defense is good. We all know who they have as far as their defensive front is concerned. Miles Garrett, Denzel Ward, and we could go through the list. But 8.5, I find that a little bit high, knowing that Watson is not going to come back until then. And yes, add the layer that he has not played under snap in a real regular season football game, forget about preseason, since January of 2020, since before the pandemic. And all of a sudden, this guy's going to come in here and work miracles? Now, it's not to knock his talent or his playmaking ability. Absolutely not. You can't. But there's going to be something said in that first game, as we all know, when he comes back, it's going to be in Houston against his former organization. So you can't even classify that game as a win because you know that the whole city is going to rally around that team to win that game. So not to automatically give the Browns a loss for that game, but eight and a half, so they have to win nine, that's a high number. I just thought to throw that out there as a little teaser on whether or not I may go in that direction or not come Thursday when it's time for choosing over-under numbers. But my beloved Steelers, seven and a half. I could go through this whole list. Jets, five and a half, who cares? But I understand the Jets are looking forward to having, at least for them, a big season, which is maybe winning eight games. And that's, I guess, the standard over there at Florham Park. But we shall see. I'll be ready come Sunday. I'll watch a little bit Thursday night. I'm not going to get all wrapped up in the pomp and circumstance of the game. But the NFL season is literally days away. And I'm sure everybody is jumping for joy at the thought of it. And then to wrap up, to put on my high tops... The Utah Jazz finished their house cleaning. Obviously, Rudy Gobert to the Timberwolves earlier in the summer. And then now, Donovan Mitchell goes to Cleveland. In return, to get Laurie Markkinen, Colin Sexton, another player who I can't pronounce his name. My apologies to the guy. As well as three unprotected first-round picks in 25, 27, and 29, and two pick swaps in 26 and 28. The first storyline... The Cavaliers have a good young nucleus here with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell in your backcourt, Evan Mobley and Jared Allen in your frontcourt. To have those four pieces on your team right now, that is an excellent start for a franchise, as we all know, other than having LeBron James there, they have been 
Basketball Siberia. Now, they played good last year. I can't knock them to that point because they were in the playoff mix. They did make it into the play-in tournament last year. They did lose to Brooklyn and then Atlanta at home, which I'm sure did not sit well knowing that they had a good year for them and even a home game in their building to go to the playoffs and they lost to a Hawk team that had made the playoffs the year before and had their long postseason run to a conference final. But to bring in Mitchell and to have that nucleus, that could be a team to look out for in the years to come. Are they going to be a threat to the Celtics, Bucks, Nets, Sixers? Probably not. They may win a first-round playoff series, and who knows what they could do in a second round. Could they go to a conference final? Maybe a break or two? Possibly. But still, the Eastern Conference is pretty stacked And I think they may be another player away before they could really be talked about as far as a team that has championship aspirations. That's the first layer. The second layer is the Knicks. And I've said this time after time, what is this organization doing? The reports came out a week or so ago that they were going to extend R.J. Barrett to a four-year, $115, $120 million-ish dollar contract. That hasn't been finalized or confirmed, but the sweepstakes for Mitchell where a lot of people thought the Knicks were going to be involved, that yes, they probably would have had to part with Barrett and some of the draft picks that they were able to procure over the last couple of off seasons, and to bring in a guy that, yes, would have made the Knicks relevant and possibly put them into the postseason, 100%, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to have a lot of legs come the postseason, similar to the Cavaliers position to where... Maybe they'll make some noise, but quite frankly, they probably won't against the upper echelon teams in the conference. But the Knicks having Jalen Brunson and we know Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett there is still not enough. What are they going to be? Sixth seed, seventh seed, eighth seed in the Eastern Conference? If they would have brought in Mitchell, maybe they could have gone as high as four or maybe as high as five. And as of right now, forget about it. So Leon Rose... William Wesley, a.k.a. World Wide West, again, dropped the ball, not going to be relevant. They have no pulse of this town, no pulse of the fan base. If you ask me, not even a pulse of what's going on in the league. And I don't care if they have a zillion times more experience than I do, but they certainly do not have experience when it comes to dealing with this type of organization in this city with these fans. Maybe you could pull off the Invisible Man Act In Charlotte, well, I understand Michael Jordan's there, but you get my point. You could do this in Portland. You could do this in Sacramento. You can't do this in New York. You're not pulling the wool over the fans' eyes in this city. And it's disgraceful what's going on there in the Garden. Disgraceful. Nothing short of it. You would think those two guys are in the witness protection program, or they don't want to be seen throughout New York City. As it is, we don't even know what they look like because they've never faced a camera or a microphone as long as they've been here. Have you even seen these guys? Not a peep. Not even a smoke signal from these guys. It's just it's just a terrible optic. Say something to your fans. Anything. Two other quickies. Turns out that Danilo Gallinari, who looked like It was a torn meniscus in the FIBA World Cup qualifying game. Well, 
The Celtics got their worst nightmare. It's an ACL that he tore. And even though he said he's going to do his best to get back to the team and maybe into the lineup as early as the end of the regular season, we all know ACLs are 6-12 to 12 month recoveries. Just ask Jamal Murray and even Kawhi Leonard. Well, although Kawhi Leonard is the poster boy for load management, so I'm sure he took a sweet time to get himself back and I'm sorry Kawhi that's just from what we see on the outside I get it I'm sure you're working hard behind the scenes to get your knees sound and want to play a full 82 but then again full 82 and Kawhi Leonard in the same sentence ha you get my point but that is a big blow because the reason why he was brought to Boston was to lessen the playing minutes of a one Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown now looks like they probably have to search for another guy like that even though Gallinari wants to come back feverishly to get back into the lineup to see if he could play in the postseason. That remains to be seen, but that was a tough blow for the Celtics, knowing that he's going to be out pretty much the entire year, you would think. And then Lonzo Ball, talk about injuries, he had a meniscus surgery on his left knee back in January, and he's still feeling the effects of that to where he may not even start the season in Chicago. So... Talk about a guy who went to Chicago three years, $85 million, a little bit of a renaissance there with DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine. And it looked like the Bull team got off to a tremendous start last year. And it looked like they may be able to make some hay in the Eastern Conference. Well, they plummeted fast. And as we saw in the first round against Milwaukee in the postseason, but not having Ball there, who's been injury prone his whole career, let's face it, going back to his days in L.A., and then his one stop in New Orleans. So this isn't news when you think about it. But with a Bull team that is looking to try to get their sea legs and try to get themselves back to respectability, not having your point guard there is a big blow. So we'll have to monitor and see how far this injury is going to last for Ball to get back with the team. And that'll do it, my good people. I stretched it a little bit over an hour, but obviously there's lots to discuss. So therefore took a little bit more time so I thank you for not only being patient but for also stopping by to listen to me spew on everything that's happening in the sports universe I appreciate your participation I appreciate you coming by and as I say time after time it is not taken for granted if you haven't done so please subscribe rate review this podcast just to increase the visibility I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it throw me a few stars write a review do what you can on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, or even some praise, maybe a suggestion, you could do so at the following. TikTok, the J Reels Podcast. Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels, one, just the number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, it will go 100% to this endeavor, to the production of this podcast, the upkeep of the website, the equipment, the microphone that sounds crystal clear now, but I could even kick it up a notch to make this experience better for your earbuds or speakers because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. In fact, I have two more podcasts coming up this week. One with Chris Dishman, the former NFL cornerback, and my NFL preview on Thursday. The Dishman interview will come up either Wednesday night or Thursday early morning, where Thursday afternoon you'll get the NFL preview and everything else that's happening in the world of sports. 
because this is what I want to do. This is it. I've been here for well over 285 episodes. In fact, now that we passed September 1st, four and a half years that I've logged of podcasts and I'm not going anywhere because this is my purpose. This is my passion. This is what drives me. doesn't matter what time of the day. Sports is in the blood, in the DNA. And if you can't feel it, whether you're listening with your headphones or through your speakers, then I don't know. I'm going to have to raise the level even more. And at that point, you may say, all right, Jay Reels, we get it, we get it, we get it. Because I love to dissect, analyze, critique, show praise with varying degrees of opinions on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Enjoy the rest of your Labor Day Monday. Have a great week. I'll see you back later on this week. Until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>